So because they have about two to 300 formulas available off the shelf and another 300 singles or so to modify them, a lot of the doctors in Taiwan start with a whole formula and sometimes they combine multiple formulas together and then add single herb ingredients. Whereas in mainland China, uh, it's mostly done the same way as they deal with the raw herb decoction. Ah, you're back for another geological episode. Great. I'm glad you're here. I'm Michael Max, and today we're taking a deep dive into herbs. Not so much their prescriptive use, but more in terms of, how could I say this? I guess you could say infrastructure. It's easy for us to think that because we have a darn good English version of the Materia Medica, that the centuries of herbal knowledge is at our fingertips. But there's a whole lot of backstory to these medicinal substances. Where herbs come from, how they're cultivated, how different plants have been used over the centuries. There's a lot we take for granted, or we simply trust our suppliers to have worked out all the details on identification and quality. In a moment, we're going to get into this conversation. But first, I want to say a quick thank you to those who have sent pictures of where you're listening to the podcast. You know, I sit here in the Geological Podcast Studio, aka the waiting room of Yong Kang Chinese Medicine Clinic, and have these conversations with you, but rarely do we get a chance to meet. So I appreciate the photos and postcards from the different places where Geological finds its way into your ears. And lately, I've been hearing from a lot of students, which was a real surprise, as I thought y'alls would be busy with your basic studies. But it sounds like some of you enjoy these conversations that cover material that won't help you pass the licensure exams. It gladdens my heart to know that there are new people coming into this field who are thirsty for the diversity of the methods that are within Chinese and East Asian medicine. Well, okay, enough of this jawboning. You probably want to get into today's show. I know I do. Man, I got a great job. I get to tell you, I get to have conversations with smart people who are so lit up by what they do. These conversations come to you through the generous support of our sponsors and members. All the sponsors here provide helpful products or services that you'll find beneficial in your clinical work. Worried that an EMR is too complex for you? Jane has friendly and knowledgeable support. Mayway Herbs is celebrating the 55th year of their family business. You're invited to make use of their vast library of resources. Are you concerned about the health of Mother Earth? AccuFast Needles is doing something about that. You can too. And later in the show, Ancestral Sturman offers up a sinew treatment, and the folks at Blue Poppy have something special to share as well. Do be sure to visit the sponsors page on the Geological website to take advantage of all the special offers our terrific sponsors have for listeners of the podcast. I don't know about you, but sometimes I take a step back and marvel at my acupuncture needles. I mean, they're the world's simplest medical tool, a sharpened wire and a handle. That's it. And with this simple tool, hundreds of health conditions can be resolved. I love it. What I didn't love was the amount of packaging waste I generated at the end of the day. But that has now changed too. Ever since I switched to AccuFast Earth-Friendly Needles, I reduced my packaging waste by 90%. Not only are they a great needle, but the folks at AccuFast plant a tree for every two boxes of needles I use in the clinic. By switching to AccuFast Needles, you'll be helping patients, planting trees, and joining a community of practitioners changing the world. 
Like our simple needle, being a part of the solution, it's simple too. Visit AccuFastNeedles.com slash Geological to learn how. Hi folks, I'm Yvonne Lau, president of Mayway Herbs. Our family business turns 55 this year, and we wouldn't have gotten this far without the love and support of our community. We're truly grateful and promise you that we'll continue to work hard to support you and your practice. Please visit Mayway.com to find the perfect Pumsar brand formula or formulate your own in our dispensary. Our site also has lots of articles, videos, and herbal recipes for you to explore. And tune into our podcast, Chinese Medicine Matters, for insightful discussions on all things TCM. Learn about treatment strategies and powerful herbal remedies. As we welcome the month of May, our focus is on women's health. Our newsletter articles and podcast episodes this month will highlight different aspects and unique challenges women face. So subscribe or tune in. And if you're a practitioner, get a discount on our women's health formulas this month. Just visit Mayway.com. This season and every season, trust Mayway Herbs for your health and wellness needs. And thank you for supporting Real Chinese Medicine. I love how technology can help to automate my office. And I want to share with you my favorite tool for doing so, Jane. Jane is a clinic management software in EMR with a human touch. Whether you're switching your software or going paperless for the first time, the Jane team knows that the onboarding process can feel a little overwhelming. That's why with Jane, you don't just get software, you get a whole team. Included in every Jane subscription is their award-winning customer support available by phone, email, and chat whenever you need it, even Saturdays. You can also book a free account setup consultation to review your account and ensure you feel confident about going live. If you're interested in making the switch to Jane, head to jane.app/switch to book a one-on-one demo with a member of their support team. And be sure to mention the code Geological at the time of sign up for a one-month grace period on your new Jane account. I've got Eric Brand with me today. Eric is a self-described herb nerd, and he has a PhD in Chinese herbal medicine to prove it too. I first met Eric in the early part of the century when we were both in Taiwan. He's still there, at least when not traveling to some conference or to teach somewhere. We're really lucky to have guys like Eric who are fluent in Chinese and can go deep into the culture and the modern educational and business relations in such a way that he can bring new information to us here in the West, most especially about herbs, which is the topic of what we're getting into here today. Eric, welcome to Geological. Thanks, Michael. It's really an honor to be here. you got such a great group of people. I can't believe that I'm on your list here. Well, you are. So there you go. Yeah, we met in Taiwan all those years ago. You're still there. What have you been up to these days? I know back when we were hanging out, you were really into herbs, and then you headed off to Hong Kong for a PhD. What are you up to these days? It's been quite a few years since we were hanging out, drinking oolong tea together in Taiwan. So I was doing a lot of work with uh, translation. If there's one thing that's sort of a consistent theme here in my life, I guess it's running into good teachers. So around the time that we were visiting together in Taiwan, I was really fortunate to be spending a lot of time studying with uh, Feng Ye and Nigel Wiseman learning. Feng Ye brought me into the hospital to do more clinical medicine. Nigel was teaching me about the translation 
over time, I started getting into really, really interested in the granules, started meeting a lot of the people at the owners of the granule factories, started going around to mainland China, throughout Taiwan, visiting all the granule factories, generally trying to learn more about the prepared products. And then over time, my life has just generally tended to move more and more deeply into the herbs. So in Hong Kong, I was really fortunate to encounter my PhD supervisor, Professor Zhao Zhongzhen. He's really a one of China's very top experts for herbal identification. And I felt really fortunate to have the chance to study with Professor Zhao. In the Chinese world, he's mostly known for Chinese medicine authentication. He did a lot of early work with microscopy, the powder analysis of being able to identify Chinese herbs in powder form using just a microscope. In the Chinese world, mostly known for a lot of his scientific contributions. But really his passion is that broad traditional discipline of materia medica. So starting from Bensao literature, throughout the identification of herbs, traditional macroscopic differentiation of traditional identification of quality through to powder, natural resources, basically all of the background story of the herbs before they reach you in a dried, sliced form in your pharmacy. And so over the last many years, really, I've been focusing more on the, you know, the plants and the, and the sliced crude drugs rather than the patients, exactly. But I've been just having a great chance to jump into that topic. And my teacher has been bringing me throughout China to see farms, factories, herbal markets, and it's been really rare opportunity. So I've been just pursuing that as much as I can. Fantastic. I've got a few questions about that. So you were mentioning that those of us here in the West, you know, we get these packages, we got our crude sliced herbs, and, you know, we've done our study in Chinese medicine school. So we've got an idea of what the herb is. And I hear you say, you've got this teacher and his main thing is herb identification. It makes me go, what, you mean they don't know how to identify it after 2000 years? What are some of the issues around herb identification? that he's looking at and is pertinent in particular to us as users of these products. In a sense, you could say that herbal identification is relatively mature and that the vast majority of the medicinal products that we use, somebody has gone very, very deep in through the historical Bensao literature, through the botanical illustrations in ancient texts, basically verifying that, you know, what we know as today is Renshen. Was that really the product that was used as Renshen 2,000 years ago? Which plants in Chinese medicine have had historical changes? For example, something like Baitou Wang, you have a lot of adulterants on the market, a lot of confused species. The ancient texts often described Baitou Wang with relatively vague terminology. And so, clarifying exactly what was the precise botanical identity of Baitou Wang at different points in history is itself a study, and then figuring out, okay, what, what material is used as Baitou Wang in different parts of China, throughout different parts of the world. Like, for example, in the U.S., when we encounter Zizhao, we often encounter a adulterant of Zizhao, which is called Potentilla chinensis, often sold in like Chinatown pharmacies under the name Bei Zizhao. It's an aerial part of a plant versus a, a purple root. This material if you go to like a typical Chinatown pharmacy in the U.S. or in, in uh, Holland or in Australia or in Canada, most of the pharmacies, that if you just ask for Zutzau, the item that they'll dispense is not actually Zutzau, but it's a, a customary regional substitute that's been used as Zutzau in southern China for hundreds of years. But if you go to Taiwan, you find that same plant is sold as Baitou Wang. That plant in Taiwan is used as Baitou Wang. In Cantonese regions, 
tends to be used as zizhao. And it's neither Bai Tawang nor Zizhao. So when we think about what are issues in Chinese herbal identification, it's not that nobody knows what that plant is. We know what that plant is, but it's still widely confused in trade because you have over hundreds of years pharmacies being in the habit of seeing Zizhao looking like this herb. As you know, I, when I first started studying Chinese medicine, I did an apprenticeship in a Chinese pharmacy, a Chinatown-style shop in San Diego, where I was filling formulas in the shop for about three years. And the boss in that pharmacy, the zutsao that he has, is, is the Cantonese substitute. But if I was to go with a sample of genuine, authentic Arnibia with Chinese pharmacopoeia, official zutsao product he wouldn't recognize it. He wouldn't believe that that is genuine zutsao. He would think that the genuine zutsao is the one that he's been using for the last 45 years. So there are some regional differences. There are some differences through time, how some of these substances have been used. And that can create some confusion. Right. And so when, when I did my PhD research, for example, one of the items that we focused on was I basically had two large components. One that I was looking at during the British colonial era, the British during the time that Singapore and Malaysia was a British colony, they collected basically all the Chinese medicines sold in Chinese pharmacies in peninsular Malaysia and brought them back to the UK and stored them for about 100 years. In the last 100 years, nobody had systematically gone through that whole range of samples to look at how those historical specimens are similar or different to the decoction pieces that we use today. You can see some of the plants that we see as common substitutes in a Chinatown pharmacy in LA today were also already appearing as substitutes in Chinese pharmacies and in Malaysia 100 years ago. And then we looked a little bit more closely on some of the ones that are related to issues of risolocic acid because those have a you know, really clear safety component to them and a very clear example of like confusion of botanical identity and the importance of correct botanical identity in terms of Chinese medicine safety. And so if we think about the case with Mutong, historically, the descriptions and the botanical illustrations in ancient Bensao texts suggest that Akibia species were used as Mutong in ancient times. So as you probably know from all your work with Huang Huang and studying with Shang Han Lun, the, the names Tong Sao and, and Mutong those two names were switched. So in early, early times, they used the name Tong Sao to describe what we today call Mutong. But that Mutong at that early times was derived from Akibia. And all the way through to the present day, in Japan, they only use Akibia sources of Mutong. But as TCM practitioners, you know, the primary form of a Mutong that Chinese medicine practitioners use is Tron Mutong. And Tron Mutong is a safe form of Mutong that doesn't contain aristolocic acid. But Chuan Mutong has been used at least since around 1848. It's well documented in the Bensao text. But Chuan Mutong is actually somewhat of a later form of Mutong. And Akibia's forms of Mutong are very rarely used in Chinese medicine today. Akibia is mostly cultivated for the fruit in China, Ba Yue Jia. And so they keep the plant alive and keep harvesting the fruit rather than cutting it down and using the stem. And so there's overall much more limited natural resources and medicinal material of Akibia-derived mutong in China. And basically what happened in the Qing dynasty is you started to have a substitute from northeastern China derived from Aristolochia manchuriensis, guan mutong. And guan mutong had abundant natural resources, a relatively thick, high-yielding stem. And so it became used as a mutong uh, substitute. And it was never recorded in the traditional Bensao literature. But by the time they started doing 
uh, systematic market surveys in the 1960s in China and trying to figure out what are the Latin names that correlate to all the Chinese names of the, the products in trade. At that time, guanmutong was already very prevalent in trade. And so pretty much from like the latter half of the 20th century until after the 1990s when the dangers of ristolocic acid in mutong were discovered and guanmutong was eliminated from trade, it was banned from trade, but before that time, it was quite quite prominent. And so now, guanmutong, it's almost impossible to find it in an herbal market today. It's been very effectively eliminated from trade, and all that we see is tronmutong. So for my PhD research, I was, I was looking at different historical specimens of mutong. So taking like mutong from Japan in the late 1800s, mutong from the mid-late 1800s in China, and different specimens from around 100 to 150 years ago, and figuring out can those historical specimens help clarify the timeline of when the substitution of mutong with the aristolocic acid-containing species emerged. It was great. We even got to go to the British Natural History Museum, found a 300-year-old specimen of, of Akebia, confirmed that what we knew from the Bensal literature was correct, basically. Wow. This in-depth look into herbs, like you've been doing, like you just described, is this something that's commonly done in China? You know, in China, you basically have the, the field of Chinese medicine. In a way, it's sort of split into two branches. At the school that I was at in Hong Kong, all of the major universities in Hong Kong have Chinese medicine programs. But the only one that has Chinese herbal pharmacy and Chinese medicine as two separate disciplines within the school was our school, Hong Kong Baptist University. And in China, it's very common for them to have herbal medicine and clinical medicine as two separate tracks, basically pharmacy and medicine. In the West, basically the only part of the field that we're currently able to really access and study is the medicine side. And so we know when to prescribe Shu Di Huang versus Sheng Di Huang, but we don't necessarily know much about like the the origin of Di Huang. We may have the idea that Di Huang has a, a Dao Di region in Hunan where the best is produced, or that we have this concept that you know, Shu Di Huang is is processed with wine or it's steamed and you have this basic idea of, of powder, but exactly how is the powder executed? What part of China does Dihuang come from? In fact, Dihuang has is, is been grown from clone, from cuttings for uh, over a thousand years. So Dihuang actually, which people will plant Dihuang seeds, they'll get Romania glutinosa seeds, plant them in their garden and think, oh, I've got Dihuang growing. But actually, the, the medicinal Dihuang that we use is not derived from the genetic diversity of seed grown material. It's a selected cultivar that's been grown by clone in a certain region for over a thousand years. And so, certain herbs, like there's a whole tradition of cultivation, selection of cultivars and stuff that goes into the, the background of these herbs. Generally, in the West, we pretty much are only dealing with how to prescribe the medicine. And in China, they have a pharmacist that they can rely on to figure out where to get the Dihuang, where the good Dihuang comes from, you know, all of that stuff. They have pharmacists who can sort out the raw material supply. But in the West, we kind of need to be a jack of all trades. We're expected to be the pharmacist and the doctor. And so there's this whole area of herbal pharmacy that, that thus far it hasn't really reached the West because it mostly is still only available in Chinese. Yeah, we're basically relying on our suppliers and importers and hoping that they've got the background to make sure we're getting the right stuff and in a good quality. And we are lucky that we are in a field where we have some very good suppliers and very good importers. So you do have some choices of people that are really passionate about sourcing and getting the right material in the field. But 
of course, depending on a supply chain, anytime you have people that are business people involved where you have business and academia, sometimes these two things mix perfectly and sometimes not as perfectly. Yeah. You were talking about visiting granule factories in Taiwan. You got a chance to go see all of those. Those have been around a while now. And then a chance to see it in the mainland as well. How would you describe the manufacture of, of granules uh, in each of those two regions and, and how they're different or how they might be similar? It's fundamentally similar because the process of making granules is basically replicating a water decoction. So it's not exactly rocket science in terms of the core principle. However, it, it does have a tremendous amount of of modernization and the, the level of technique that's applied is actually really inspiring and sophisticated. In uh, both mainland China and Taiwan, you have some very, very advanced, very sophisticated granule factories. And to a Westerner who's never seen a granule factory, it's really mind-blowing to see that level of technology and scale implemented around an herbal medicine product. Not to mention a bunch of laboratory equipment. You have you know whole rooms full of basic equipment like HPLC or TLC microscopy, but then you also even have things like uh, you know UPLC, and then people are even doing this testing equipment like with QTOF mass, where they're able to take these complex fingerprints. Because one of the most complicated things is for whole formulas that have been cooked together to be able to have the quality control to measure such complex multi-component mixtures. You have some new generation technologies now that are emerging that are doing these complex fingerprinting that are still really at the research stage, but for understanding the complex fingerprints of whole formulas cooked together, uh, as well as even identifying down to like the production region of a certain herb, like taking an herb from different production regions in China and looking at its overall complex chemical fingerprint to try to figure out, can the fingerprint even help to clarify where the herb was grown? In some cases, it seems to be able to. So you have a huge amount of technology and sophistication going on in the lab. But if you ask about the the basic differences between uh, Taiwan and mainland China, I would say that one of the key differences is that the industry in Taiwan started very early. Originally, granule technology originally was pioneered in Japan and started to become integrated for Japanese Kampo and became integrated into the Japanese national insurance. And after it became accepted by Japanese insurance, it really opened up the market tremendously. And the first granule factory in Taiwan, Sunten, the owner of Sunten had studied in Japan brought the granule technology back to Taiwan. And Taiwan originally started making a lot of whole formulas for export to Japan. The industry in Taiwan gradually developed around whole formulas that had been cooked together and then adding single herb ingredients. And so the prescribing style in Taiwan is very heavily influenced by which products are available. So because they have about two to 300 formulas available off the shelf and another 300 singles or so to modify them. A lot of the doctors in Taiwan start with a whole formula and sometimes they combine multiple formulas together and then add single herb ingredients. Whereas in mainland China, uh, it's mostly done the same way as they deal with the raw herb decoction. So they write out the ingredients and the raw herb decoction doses, and then they just replicate that in granule form. And in the past, they used to use these small little single dose packets. But now what's increasingly happening in mainland China is they have these large automated, like sort of a refillable 300 gram tube style jar that has a special lid that fits into an automated machine. 
And so they'll have like an automated system where each herb has a variable concentration ratio and software that adjusts it in the computer so that the doctor writes down the raw herb dose weight and then the computer adjusts it, weighs out each individual herb to get the same concentrated equivalent of that raw herb dose weight, mixes it all together, and then dispenses it in single doses for the patients. And so basically you have two different styles of prescribing going on. Hello everyone, Anne Cecil Sturman here. A working knowledge of the eight extraordinary channels from the unbroken oral tradition of acupuncture is valuable beyond words. The power of these channels is tremendous if the practitioner has well-integrated diagnostic, theoretical and practical skill. You'll be familiar with Dumai, the governor channel or the sea of Yang, the primal reservoir of Yang which ultimately finances all movement and growth. But this channel also governs the ability to self-determine. The psycho-emotional presentation of your patients can be matched to a classical activation of this channel, clearing impedance in the free flow of yang chi to body, mind and spirit. I'd like to share with you the marvelous potency of the Do channel in a full-length live treatment video from the seminar I taught last year in Melbourne, Australia. It's at ancecilsturman.com forward slash sinews2024. Click on the jump to free teaching button or see the link on my Instagram page at ancecilsturman. Thanks, Michael. Back to you. I was talking with Andy Ellis here at the beginning of this year, and we're talking about the so-called five to one concentration. Getting a true five to one really depends on the substance that you're working with. What I hear you saying is over on the mainland, they're aware that some things, maybe they're concentrated two to one, others they might be concentrated 10 to one, depending on how they do it. And so they're writing a prescription based on a traditional prescription or whatever the doctor thinks. And then they're able to put in a certain amount of granules based not just on weight, but also on its concentration to create what the doctor would have otherwise done with raw herbs. Is that correct? The doctor is just writing 10 grams of baishao, and he wants that 10 grams of baishao as though it were raw herbs in a decoction. Right? And then the software is figuring out how much of this concentrated extract to dispense to equate to 10 grams of baishao. Whereas in Taiwan, they're not really thinking about the granule dose based on its raw herb equivalents. The insurance in Taiwan covers a six gram dose of granules, and they usually give that dose three times per day. And so usually in Taiwan, most doctors are dosing around like 12 to 18 grams per day of granules, but they're thinking about that total daily target dose, and they're thinking proportionally within that target dose, how much of it is going to be formula A, how much will be formula B, how much of it is going to be the single herb modification ABC. And so in Taiwan, it's not in the doctor's head. It's mostly thinking about what's the total amount of granules I'm giving to this person and adjusting it proportionally, rather than thinking about what's the raw herb equivalence of that granule dose. And so oftentimes in Taiwan, you'll see the same doctor when they prescribe raw herbs versus when they prescribe granules. If you actually do the mathematical calculation, they give a different dose weight when giving raw versus giving granules. But granules is covered by insurance. Raw has to pay out of pocket. 
granule has a limitation on the total dosage that's imposed by the government, and so they generally work within that that dose range. And I think that you know cost is often a factor for people using granules throughout the world. So if you see practitioners in Australia where granules are far more expensive than than they are in America, you know in America the granules are maybe half the price or less than in Australia. And so in Australia, the price is very high. And so practitioners tend to use relatively low doses. In America, the price is intermediate. People tend to use, uh, you know, doses lower than in Taiwan, but but higher than Australia. And so, and then in Japan, the granule price is very, it's very high, but the dosage tends to also be very low. So in, in Japan, they're sort of typically using only about six grams of granules per person per day. And Taiwan, they're using 12 to 18. There's so much variation, even between regions, of what is the total amount of granules that people are using. It's a little bit tricky to make a, a precise claim that one dose range is correct. You know, I think it's incredibly tricky. As you pointed out, it has to do with insurance reimbursements. It has to do with local economics. It has to do with local habits. I mean, I remember when I first got to Taiwan, I was there like a month and a half and I got really, really sick. And a friend of mine who was also there studying uh, language said, hey, I heard about this old Zhongyi, right? Let's go see him. Let's have him prescribe some herbs for you. So we go down and she translates because I can't speak at that point. And this guy's a fossil. He's like in his early 90s, Dr. Chang. You know, so we talk, he takes my pulse, blah, blah, blah. The herb girl's dish up some powder. And I say to my friend, go find out what they gave me. I'm here to learn. Go find out what they gave me. Turns out he gave me five different formulas modified with like four herbs. I, you know, I looked at this and I just went, man, if I would have attempted something like this with my teachers in the United States, they would have been like, haven't you been paying attention? I thought this guy was like beyond his pull date. It's like, what am I doing? Well, it turns out I take the herbs and, and I'm sure that I'm going to be in the hospital the next day because I was really sick. And I get up the next day and I'm 80% better. I usually have a dry cough after a cold. I cough. I have a mouthful of phlegm. And I'm thinking, what happened here? Right? Here's a way of working with herbs completely foreign to me. It clearly is effective. right? But it's a whole different way of thinking about prescribing herbs. And it seems to be a very... Taiwanese style, so to speak. Like you were saying, on the mainland, they're really looking to replicate a raw herb prescription. So I'm, I'm wondering if you can go a little more into how the Chinese doctors in Taiwan are thinking when they're thinking about putting together four formulas and then modifying it with five different herbs. Well, you know, that's actually kind of the way I got into granules in the first place is you know, my interest in granules really came out from being in the hospital in Taiwan, watching how they would prescribe these, this basically like what you said, and a whole new way of using granules, something that you had some of the teachers from mainland China would come to do lectures at the hospital I was at in Taiwan. And they would think that the Taiwanese style of prescribing had completely lost all direction. They thought, oh, you've got, you know, you've got three formulas with 10 ingredients, you have 30 herbs, 12 of them you are irrelevant for this patient or whatever they say you can't subtract you can only add you've got basically too many ingredients losing the clarity and direction of the formula and the taiwanese doctors would think no it's just the opposite each formula has a very clear principle and so they're seeing these three formulas they're not seeing it as 30 herbs they're seeing it as three 
principles, almost using those three formulas as though they were three single herbs, you know, almost using a shaoyasan as though it were one herb that courses the liver and supplements the spleen, right? So when you're often modifying a prescription, you think, okay, the person has problem A, but they've got a little bit of wood earth disharmony that's not their major concern, but if wood and earth aren't in balance, it's going to be harder to address the main problem. And so it, as a raw herb prescription, you could just add a little bit of chaihu and baiju, and, but you have to add several ingredients to, to make it happen, you know, whereas in, they would just add a little bit of shaoyasan to just tinker that wood earth dynamic. Oftentimes, like when I would look at my teacher, Feng Ye, he would take something like uh, Matsu Renwan and Shaiyosan. Let's say he's got somebody who has a chief complaint of constipation, but they don't need to take long-term purgatives. Really, they mostly just have wood earth imbalance that once that's corrected, then the constipation will be back in sort. He would use the Matsu Renwan and the Shaiyosan together and alter the ratio of the two of them. So when the person still has more constipation, the Matsurenwan proportion is higher and the Shaoyasan is lower. And he generally changed it so that the Shaoyasan generally gets increased and the Matsurenwan tapers off until he can drop off the Matsurenwan altogether, keep the Shaoyasan, and then the, the constipation doesn't bounce back. I got really interested in looking at how people use granules just from that difference between mainland China and Taiwan. And that made me start to talk to a lot of different doctors using granules in both places. And I realized that in Taiwan, a lot of the doctors didn't know what was going on with granules in mainland China. And a lot of doctors in, in mainland China didn't know really what was going on with granules in Taiwan. And so I discovered it was kind of a fascinating topic to get into. And you realize that there's so much that even within the, the Chinese world, nobody has written a handbook or a book, even in Chinese, that really clearly describes this. And there's still a lot of misunderstanding in mainland China about things like what does the, when Taiwanese companies market their granules overseas as five to one, what does that mean? And likewise in China. So you have all these different issues of confusion where these two types of granule products, they're only really encountering each other for the first time overseas because the Taiwanese granules aren't legally able to be sold in China and vice versa. And so these two types of granules never actually encounter each other until they go to Germany or Singapore or Amsterdam, right? As Western consumers, we have the chance to to choose the, you know, sort of the, take the best of, of all worlds. In mainland China, the way that the granule prescribing has evolved is influenced by the regulations. So far, you don't have a place in Chinese regulations for the whole formulas cooked together to be dispensed in hospitals. So the single herbs are basically regulated under the same category as decoction pieces. So they're not finished medicines until a doctor prescribes them and compounds them together. Um, whereas in Taiwan, the regulations basically allow any, any formula up through the end of the Qing dynasty, basically any formula over 100 years old, that's decocted according to the classical text, that can be made into a prescription granule. And then also the single herbs. So you have some differences. In mainland China, a lot more single herbs with different powder choices. In Taiwan, a lot more whole formulas that have been cooked together. What are your thoughts on the signature of a formula that's been cooked together versus a bunch of granules that are all made up separately and then mixed together? Of course, it's one of the most important and uh, most popular questions. Uh, it's also one of the most challenging questions to answer. Right now, when we're trying to understand, basically, historically, people decocted the, the herbs together. 
a lot of practitioners feel like the most conservative choice is to preserve that interaction in the decoction process. And there are a number of arguments that can be made that suggest it, it's desirable or important to preserve that uh, whatever synergy may exist in that decoction process. So for example, let's say you have a formula like ma huang tang versus ma xing shi gan tang. The two formulas fundamentally the same, except in one case you have guizhi accentuated in the warm, acrid, free nature of ma huang. In the other case, you have shi gao being cold and causing the formula to, instead of being a warm, acrid formula, now it's a formula able to treat lung, lung heat just simply by the, the change of using, instead of using guizhi, using shi gao. But if you look at the, the chemistry of that formula, yeah, ma huang is a lot of its activity is related to its alkaloids. And the solubility of alkaloids in a decoction, in a water decoction, is going to be affected by the pH. And so if, if you have some herbs that are naturally sour, like wu wei zi, wu mei, shan jia, things that have a lot of organic acids, these will tend to lower the pH of the solution. Whereas if you have a lot of mineral products like mu li, long gu, a lot of these relatively alkaline minerals, they'll tend to raise the pH of the solution. So you would tend to have more solubility of alkaloids in a more acidic solution and less solubility in a more basic solution. So it may be that in some cases, like something like long gu or mu li, you know, if you analyze it chemically, this fundamentally mostly calcium. Right. Now, is the major value of that ingestion of the calcium per se, or is it potentially its presence in the formula in the decoction altering the solubility of some of the other constituents? And how to analyze that and how to interpret it is a very complex question. So you take a formula that's decocted together, and you take a formula mixed from singles, put them through HPLC and compare the, the chemical peaks of them. You'll see there are some differences in the peaks. But what is the significance of those differences is a very difficult question to answer. Because the peaks that you're looking at and measuring, those are things where you have a pure analytical reference standard for like, let's say you want to look at how much Huanglian is in Huanglian Jejutong cooked together versus Huanglian Jejutong mixed from singles. Right? And you can look at like the, the berberine content. You could even say, okay, you've got Huang Bai and Huang, Huang Lian, they both contain berberine, right? So you could even look at a few different markers. If you, let's say you're looking at that berberine, you have a pure sample of berberine that you can put into the machine and then you know, okay, that peak is berberine. But what's that peak next to it? You don't have a pure analytical reference sample. So to identify what is the chemical structure of that peak, even if it's a known chemical, it's challenging. And if it's an unknown chemical, to then be able to isolate it characterize it, even to identify what it is, right, is potentially a $10,000 research question, you know, in terms of the cost, operating costs. And then even you've identified what it is to isolate enough of it, and then to somehow test its pharmacology to give it to how many rats under how many different models to figure out, you know, maybe it treats diarrhea, but does that clear heart fire, right? What model, what animal model can you use to, to assess that, right? And so how, what is the activity of it? You know, you were just saying something about ma huang shigan tang and ma huang tang and how adding minerals can change the pH of a decoction. And it might even change what is being pulled out. So maybe ma huang acts a little bit differently with the pH that shigal is causing versus the pH that something like guajir is causing. So is my thinking correct here? Let me ask you this, that there are certain things that would show up on that various equipment 
that shows active ingredients and such. But there, could there be some difference in the character of the mahuang when it's come out in a more alkaline solution than when it comes out in, say, a more acidic solution? You know, with something like mahuang, a little bit tricky to fully answer the question. But like if you look at zhi mahuang, the honey processed mahuang versus the unprocessed mahuang. So uh, unprocessed mahuang, when you decoct it, more alkaloid will enter the decoction. The processed mahuang, the honey actually inhibits the ephedrine alkaloids from entering decoction. So you would typically expect, you wouldn't be surprised to have a different intensity of alkaloid concentration when decocting zhi mahuang versus sheng mahuang. But zhi mahuang, that moderated effect is desirable in the case where zhi mahuang is used. Or traditionally, you know, from like the Shang Han Lun, they recommended removing the nodes of mahuang. And when we went to like the British Natural History Museum, we found a 300-year-old specimen of mahuang from China. At that time, all the nodes had been removed. But then we looked at other specimens of mahuang from 100 years ago, like from, for example, at uh, Kamwajung in the in the gold, a gold rush collection of Chinese herbs that's been preserved since uh, for about 100 years in Oregon. The mahuang there, the nodes had not been removed. And in the modern herbal shop today, you typically will find mahuang without the nodes removed. The nodes of mahuang, if you analyze them chemically, like if you take mahuang and you break open the fractured surface, it's got a little bit of a pink color on the middle of the pith. And the intensity of that pinkness is related to the alkaloid content. But if you analyze the joints of mahuang versus the space in between the joints, the joints have much lower alkaloid content. And so the removal of the nodes in the traditional practice would have increased the potency of the mahuang by weight. But is the action of mahuang purely related to its ephedrine alkaloids? Difficult to say. Clearly, it's definitely related. The sinus you know, effects are related. The sweat-promoting effects are related. Urination effects are related. But mahuang also has volatile oils and other things in it. And that, that's never been fully systematically analyzed. So a lot of the things that we know, like with chemistry and traditional medicine, it's hard to fully correlate. You could definitely say that the berberine and huanglian is related to its anti-diarrhea effect, but there's no scientific model for assessing what in huanglian clears heart fire, right? There's not a pure correlation between chemistry and traditional actions. And so we look at the HPLC fingerprint of a formula cooked together versus one mixed from singles. And we say, okay, there are differences. And because of the differences, some people would say it's better to follow the traditional method and keep whatever synergy in the decoction process was there. And if you're a chef and you're making a dish, you would know that adding the garlic and stewing the meat with it is going to be different than if you were to add the meat and the garlic together at the end and mix it together. And so you have a lot of ways that you think that this inter interaction of ingredients it has traditional justification, it has scientific justification, but at the same time, the scientific justification is a little bit unclear because when you're dealing with like a whole formula that's been cooked together, you generally rely on having the, a supply chain where the herbs are already dried and available at the same time. When you're dealing with the herbs from singles, you can get it straight from one farm right after harvest, extract the entire amount in an optimized decoction condition for each herb. And so in one case, so let, let's say like you want to have yin chao san and you wanted to add huang qin to yin chao san. You have a little bit more like lung heat, for example. Huang qin is going to extract best with a slightly longer decoction time. 
But yin chao san is going to need a relatively short decoction time because it needs that short decoction time for that the light herbs to reach the surface of the body, according to the Wenbing Tiao Bian, like when, he, when they talk about Sangju Yin, you know, they talk about the uh, prolonged decoction will cause the flavor to thicken right, into the interior. It needs a short decoction time to rise to the yep, surface. You want it right? light so it'll disperse. Right. And so you want a short decoction time for Yin Chao San, but a longer decoction time for Huang Qin. So any way you boil the Huang Qin with the Yin Chao, it's going to be not optimized for the Huang Qin, but will be optimized for the other. Historically, people didn't ever test this out scientifically. They didn't have nine different pots on nine different fires and boil each herb under optimized conditions and then mix it together and compare that to everything put together. They had a limitation of firewood, a limitation of resources. They just had one pot on one fire. And they were busy treating people. They weren't being researchers. They were just treating people. Yeah. So, they, I mean, they cooked it together because they only had one fire and one pot going. It wasn't necessarily because that was systematically tested to be the best way. But that's still the, the most conservative thing is to preserve that traditional decoction. In recent years, the Sa'am acupuncture style has generated significant interest and a loyal and growing following. In the Sa'am approach, a precise diagnosis leads to a four-needle treatment to address the five-element and six-chi imbalances in the body. The four needles target the controlling and generating cycles. It's common using this method for the needle sensation to be stronger than in many other styles. Thus, the choice of needle becomes important. The Unico brand of needles lends itself to both strong and gentle techniques. These superior needles are made of uncoated Japanese surgical stainless steel and feature the best guide tube on the market with its unique beveled edge. Additionally, Unico needles have a tensile property that helps with freehanding needles into Jingwell points and allows you to more easily feel the arrival of Qi. Blue Poppy is the exclusive importer and distributor of Unico needles. Use the code QI. 2024 to save 10% off Unico needles at www.bluepoppy.com. You'll be glad you did. Yeah. So, you know, back to traditional decoctions, you know, we're talking about the way that they prescribe this stuff in Taiwan, which is a whole different mental framework. And, and if you know that framework and you can work with it, you, you can actually get some pretty good results. And then you've got the thing in the mainland where they've got these incredible machines that are going to look at the, the actual extraction ratio, do some fancy footwork with mathematics and computers, and be able to create a granulated formula that matches what a crude formula would have been. What about us that are here in the West? You know, we don't have these fancy machines. And the extraction ratios, generally speaking, are not five to one. How do we know that what we're thinking in terms of dosage actually matches reality when the patient drinks it out of the cup? Going back to what you're saying about the, the five to one, the five to one is slightly 
it's often a slightly imprecise rule of thumb. The way that the five to one thing really actually started around the world was uh, mostly from Taiwanese granule companies. When people would ask them, what's the concentration of the herbs? You know, trying to track down, you know, where did this, you know, myth of the five to one, where was the, you know, what the origin myth of it? Where did it come from? Right. Andy was telling me originally that uh, back in the day, the Taiwanese companies would take a decoction, they would make the decoction, and then reduce the decoction in volume by tenfold, and then add starch to bring it to fivefold. And they call that five to one. And actually, in reality, if you having been to Taiwan, you've probably seen the, the granule bottles in Taiwan. All of the granule bottles in Taiwan have a label that clearly describes the concentration ratio. One gram of this product is decocted from 3.4 grams of this dried herb with, you know, decocted into this concentration mixed with this amount of starch. But when the products are exported to the U.S., they remove that information from the label. And uh, for a long period of time, customers would ask, well, what's the, what's the concentration? And they would say five to one. That's not five to one in the modern way we think about one gram of this powder equals five grams of the raw herb in decoction. If you, each of the herbs in Taiwan, every herb has a slightly different concentration ratio because every herb, when you decoct it in water, each herb has a different amount of water-soluble components. So something that's got a lot of insoluble fiber, like ji shui tang, it's a, vine, a heavy vine that has a lot of material that's going to be discarded after you in the dregs, but it only, only yields a relatively small amount of extract relative to the weight. Naturally, it's going to have a much higher concentration ratio than something like ochitsa, where it has a lot of soluble component and it, you get a lot of extract relative to a relatively small amount of the of the dried herb. And so it was uh, in mainland China, they started making granules much later. And so they only really started doing granules in mainland China in the mid-90s. So Taiwan had already been well-established in granules by starting in the 70s. And so you had uh, two different eras in which the technology matured. And then you have two different styles of making the granule. Between Japan, Taiwan, and mainland China, you have slight difference where in uh, Japan and the granules used in Japan and mainland China, they first make a decoction and then dry the decoction without any excipient. And then they have a, a pure extract that has no excipient and variable concentration ratio. And then in Taiwan, they add the excipient at the time of the drying. In all places, you're taking like a large stainless steel pressurized decoction machine, decocting a, a large batch of herbs. You're draining the water and evaporating it in a low-pressure, low-temperature environment. So they put it under a vacuum so that the water boils at a low boiling temperature so that they can eliminate the water without exposing it to too much heat. And so then you're eliminating the water and making it into like a very concentrated decoction. And that concentrated decoction is going to go through a, a spray dryer that's going to spray that thick, viscous decoction into forced warm air. And by the time it falls through that warm air, it's going to be a powder. In Taiwan, they add the excipient at the stage of the drying. So when you say excipient, you're talking about like uh, some sort of starch that they blow it onto. In Taiwan, they use starch as the excipient, and they add the excipient to the drying stage. And so that makes the, a more or less a single-step finished product. 
in mainland China and Japan, they dry the extract first into a pure extract. It's sort of a half-finished product stage. And then if you want to make that into like a five-to-one style granule, you would add excipient and compress it. And they basically like have a machine that compresses it into a brick and cuts it into little particles and then sieves it so that you have basically like a large kernel granule. The mainland Chinese companies originally never made five-to-one extracts, except that they wanted to compete with Taiwanese companies overseas. And they heard that Taiwanese companies made five-to-one extracts. In fact, Taiwanese companies, they don't make exactly five-to-one extracts. Every, every herb is different. But because of a misunderstanding, a misunderstanding related to the marketing of the Taiwanese extracts around the world, the mainland Chinese companies thought the rest of the world wants five-to-one concentration ratios. And so they took the herbs that can be concentrated above five to one and adjust them to an even five to one. And so in that case, if you're adjusting to a precise five to one, it's possible to have up to maybe 90% of the herbs at five to one. But you have some herbs that are not able to be concentrated as high as five to one because they don't naturally have, like their natural extraction ratio is lower than five to one. And so you have some herbs that are going to be exceptions and, and some herbs that are going to be powders. What would those exceptions be? What are the ones that you cannot concentrate to five to one? Well, there's several that are going to be used as, as powders that aren't going to be concentrated at all. Like sanchi, actually sanchi could be made into a concentrated extract because sanchi often used to stop bleeding. When sanchi is subjected to heat and decoction, the blood stopping ability of sanchi is weakened. And so sanchi is usually used as a crude powder in granule form because it maintains its ability to stop bleeding. And traditionally, sanchi usually use like three to nine grams in decoction or one to three grams as powder. But traditionally, a lot of practitioners prefer to use sanchi directly as a powder. The same is true with like uh, chuanbeimu. Chuanbeimu, because it's valuable, people tend not to use it in decoction. They'll tend to take it as a powder with the decoction. You have the gelatin products like uh, ojiao, lu jiao jiao, gui ban jiao, those things, they can't be decocted or they can't be made into a... Uh, granule extract. Ujiao itself is already a very concentrated product. It's already made into a very concentrated gelatin. You can crush it and take it as a powder. But if you were to try to boil Ujiao in a decoction machine, it's just going to gunk up the machine and it's not going to be concentrated any more than it already is. So you have some items like that where they can't be concentrated. So you typically see the ones that aren't concentrated, you'll see like Baiji, the blood stopping herb, Sanchi, both of those typically not concentrated, Chuanbeimu, Shuijie and Shushuzhi, those two are not very water soluble. Those two just used as powders. So there's a quite a there's a number of herbs like that where they're just uh, done as powder. And then the minerals, how are those done? Well, with minerals, you basically there are some places that just grind the minerals, and there are some places that uh, replicate a decoction process of the minerals. But the the challenge with minerals is that it's harder to quantify its uh, concentration. So let's say you have like mahuang, going back to mahuang, you have or or huanglian or whatever, you have like a certain amount of ephedrine alkaloid naturally in the mahuang, and then if you were to decoct it, you're gonna discard all this insoluble fiber and stuff that adds weight to the mahuang, right? So then naturally, like if you were to take and look at like the, the ephedrine alkaloids in the, in the concentrated extract versus in the crude mahuang or the amount of berberine in the huanglian extract versus in the crude huanglian, it's going to be more concentrated than in the raw herb because you've 
boiled it down, extracted it, and gotten rid of all this dregs. But let's say you have a mineral, you have gypsum, and uh, in both Taiwan and mainland China, they often replicate the water decoction process with with shigao. But you're basically you're crushing it and then boiling it in water. And because you've crushed it, right, some of it is suspended in the water. And the amount that gets suspended in the water is going to depend on whether you just throw in one whole lump or whether you crush it, right? You crush it up, because right. Because you're going to have uh, some of more of it will get suspended if it's somewhat crushed up. But let's say you, you boil it in the water and you strain it and you dry the water. The gypsum that you started with is chemically about the same as the gypsum that you ended with. And so you replicated the water decoction, but did you really make it more concentrated than it was originally? Hard to say, right? Was the point of the gypsum in your mashing shigantang to actually ingest crude mineral gypsum? Or was it to somehow influence the decoction environment of some of those other herbs? Hard to say. I think a lot of Western herbalists are looking at putting together a formula based on that five to one. And trying to think about dosages, well, I mean, how do we think about dosages, right? You were saying in Japan, people take smaller dosages. It's partly traditional. In Australia, they take smaller dosages. That's economic. In Taiwan, they take a certain dosage. Well, that's kind of because of the insurance system there, which, by the way, is an amazing insurance system. Here in the States, we're often trying to think about replicating something that looks like crude herbs. There's a lot of variables and a lot of moving parts here. Have you got any thoughts for our listeners on how to sort all this stuff out, some things to think about or, or some areas to look and, and give consideration to as we think about prescribing the right herbs for our patients? First and foremost, just because it's not fully mathematically precise, I wouldn't discard the five to one rule of thumb altogether. It's generally a good rule of thumb because it's going to be about most of your herbs are going to be sort of in the, the average is going to not be too far off of five to one, almost regardless of, you know, which company you're using. Many of the, many of the herbs are going to be not that far off there. So even though it's not mathematically precise, it's still a generally good rule of thumb to roughly estimate the amount of herbs that you that you would be prescribing in raw form. The individual variation of herbs batch to batch and the difference between quality grades of herbs in a way is more, it's more dramatic. Let's say like if you look at ginseng that's been grown in the forest, just by spreading seeds in the forest, it takes it 20 years to reach a tiny little two gram root size. And if you take ginseng grown in the field, you know, with a six-year root can be, you know, 30, 40 grams. And so a 10-gram dose of ginseng would be like 100 years of plant growth of wild ginseng in the ancient forest. A 10-gram dose of ginseng, a field-grown ginseng, is just one piece of one six-year root. The difference in ginseng as it's evolved over the centuries, or the difference in one really awesome batch of ginseng versus one really average batch of ginseng, that difference is more significant than the difference of whether you're giving 1.2 grams of granules in decoction or 0.9 grams of granules, you know? As long as the, the general dose range is correct and the general formula construction is matched to the patient, people tend to get good results. And I would say that nobody has a perfect guide to this. In Taiwan, people are just 
doing what they saw their teacher do. They're just trying to replicate the experience of their teacher until they have enough experience to have confidence with it of their own. In the West, people tend to do the same. Many of our teachers came to America before granules were ever used in China. And so they have no experience with granules. So we learn their experience using raw herbs, or we watch the experience of our teachers using granules. But I travel it to different schools, and I've seen some TCM schools where they give every patient who walks in the door eight grams of granules per day. I've seen other schools where they give every patient that walks in the door 12 grams. And I've seen other schools where every patient gets a different weight of granules depending on the supervisor. And so there's all these other factors right, that are going into people's decisions. But overall, I would say for me personally, I use granules about you know 10 to 15 grams a day, 12 to 18 grams a day, somewhere within that range. You know, For the average herb, a good rule of thumb no less than one gram per herb per day, right? So if I've got, you know, a formula with 12 ingredients, I'm probably going to give not really less than 12 grams of that formula. But my something like Roguei that's going to be relatively strong and potent, like what Roguei, Wujuyu, Ganjiang, those I'm going to be giving less, maybe only a half gram to a gram. Something like Shu Di Huang, Shan Yao, Maybe I'll be giving two, three grams of those. Your average middle of the road herbs like Dangwei, Baiju, you know, maybe I'll give gram, gram and a half or so. But I think about the herbs proportionally in like low, medium, high doses. Just like when you're dealing with raw, you think of low, low dose range, medium dose range, high dose range. I think about it like that with granules too. In the low dose ones, I give a, you know, more moderate proportion, middle is sort of my middle ground, and then the high, I go high. But, you know, I just think about it proportionally, and I tend to think about a total amount per day. We're going to have to wind this down here in just a moment. I can't believe this hour has gone by so quickly. It's been a lot of fun to chat with you and catch up. Yeah, I know. It's always good. I want to do this in Taiwan next time. Yeah, so we can have some tea. (laughs) I was there recently, but I think you you were gone at that moment. Yeah, we just missed each other, unfortunately. Yeah, I know. Yeah. Anything on the horizon that you're looking at or focusing on, something that, uh, you know, like your latest research project or inquiry that you'd like to share with us? You know, the next big thing is that we're working on doing like a herbal pharmacy education project. So we've recently been able to do some work with uh, Beijing Torrentong to help to do some, bring some herbal pharmacy education to America. And so that's kind of one of the the biggest things that's going to be on the horizon in the coming futures that we're going to start to do some classes in herbal pharmacy to do some, bring my teacher out to do some teaching. I'll do some teaching and we have some other people doing some clinical classes, um, but we'll be mostly focusing on, for my part, it'll be mostly focusing on the Bensam material medical literature, historical changes in Chinese medicine, powder processing, herbal identification, quality discernment, all of that fun stuff. So we'll be kind of doing a whole little series of herbal pharmacy CEU things, hopefully, in the future here. That sounds great. Well, I'll be sure that all your contact information and website and whatever other materials that you'd like to share with the listeners, I'll make sure all that's on the show notes page so people can uh, get in touch with you. I, I suspect you've got some sort of mailing list somewhere that people could sign up for if they want to be kept in touch? Well, I, I should be better at that. I say, I think the main, maybe the main repository of all of my uh, articles and stuff is at my company, Legendary Herbs. So I've got the a little page called the Professional Corner there that I've got some articles and I've got a blog that I'm going to be reviving and doing more, uh, more getting more photos and more, more fun little articles up there. So the legendaryherbs.com place is kind of my main little home for articles and 
Stefan will start putting more of these little, I need to get involved, do more of these lectures, more of these talks. All right. Well, we'll just put a bookmark in it for now and shite uh, again. Thanks, Michael. It's so wonderful to see you. Shite again. Nice to talk to you. Okay. Bye. Thanks as always for listening. If you liked this conversation, if you learned something new or found a moment of inspired insight, share the episode with your friends. If you want to support Geological, there's just one way to do that. It's by going to the website and becoming a member or leaving a one-time contribution today. Well, folks, that's it for today. Join us again next Tuesday for another conversation that connects up the voices of our community.